Welcome to the Net Zero Carbon Summit. Today we are joined by Anne Rundle, Vice President of ACT Research. Welcome to the summit, Anne. Thanks. Thanks, Mary. And thanks, Freightways, for having me and and um, hearing what ACT Research has been up to um, most recently in terms of commercial vehicle decarbonization. I got to admit, it's some of my favorite stuff. I mean, you know, who doesn't love a good decarbonization chat? Um, which is why we're here today. Uh, before we get too far into that, let's get some background on you and kind of how you started at ACT Research. Sure. So, um, you know, my background, I'm an engineer, University of Michigan, um, always been in transportation markets and had um, started to go kind of to the dark side away from propulsion. I'm really sort of an engine girl. Um, you know, 20 years at Eaton Corporation in, in, um, in engine and, and transmission stuff. And then started to say, what about alternative and what about battery electric and took a leap and got into a small startup. So always sort of had that as, uh, gee, I think we're going to get to there eventually in transportation. And um, spent three years at Fiat Chrysler as um, heading up our strategy for electrification, anything from a Fiat 500 all the way to a class six or seven uh, commercial vehicle. And um, I started to see, wait a minute, there's a value proposition on uh, commercial vehicles that are looking at, you know, payback and operating savings and so on, and aren't necessarily looking at upfront price parity. And I said, I want to get out of the passenger vehicle focus, and I want to get into commercial vehicle. And so that's what brought me to ACT Research. Um, And at ACT Research is, you know, the gold standard there. If you want to know about forecast and what's happening, you go to ACT Research. So it's kind of going to the best of the best. I was going to say, I uh, I know that we have some some writers here at Freight Waves that are big fans of ACT research and always like to publish what you guys have. So you guys kind of are the gold standard, and uh, I appreciate it for having you know as a as a data research nerd myself. I appreciate the commitment to accurate data and quality research. So thank you. Well, thank you, thank you for that. Yeah, if we can't be pretty good about it, we don't touch it. Then you know we're smart enough not to. Um, take swags about stuff. So you stick with what you know, what you can guarantee. Don't don't mess with some of that unknown. One of the things that you guys just released was that decarbonization study. What are some of those cool findings that you guys found um, for some of those alternative fuels? Because, you know, that's something that, you know, not a lot of people are really talking about yet, but it's something that's going to come up here in a couple. It's going to be a much bigger focus here in the next couple of years. So what were some of the cool findings that you guys had? Well, and, and um, I think just in overall, this is our what we were we referred to in as our third edition. So we, and in fact, way back in 2018, there was uh, a look see at it, but we did our first edition um, starting in 20, we posted in first quarter of 2021, and I had just started in with ACT Research at the time. This is now our third edition. We published it at the end of June. And so, you know, in some cases, the findings were... Um, you know, not revolutionary or hugely different from what we knew from, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago, but are sort of building on that and saying, yep, we sort of thought this was going to happen and we see it happening. But I think just from an overall perspective, I mean, we expect by 2030 in North America, going from class four through eight, you know, we'll see about 25% of the market be, um, you know, primarily battery electric. And then, you know, we would see that tipping point um, to just popping above 50% by 2040. So sort of a significant change of where we are today, which is hardly anything at all. I think we, we just bump into maybe about a percent. Um, but, but part of that is just vehicle availability, um, things like that, but also just 
there's been tremendous improvements and changes in battery technology, and that will continue to happen. Um, you know, significant, especially if I compare to when I first was in with the startup in 2007, um, you know, just energy density and cycles and everything. Um, you wouldn't dream of trying to electrify a class A tractor, you know, 10 years ago, people would have thought you were absolutely insane. Um, and I'm sure there are some people today who still think it's insane, but, but it's technically feasible. So that, that's, the, that's the difference. And I think that, um, you just look at from a total cost of ownership and operating expenses, there are a number of applications today in class four through eight. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking long haul class eight tractor, but I'm talking, you know, um, medium duty trucks that have very, have a duty cycle that really says, wow, you're better off as a battery electric than you are as a diesel. I'm not idling. I'm not idling a diesel and I'm not getting really not that great. I mean, a diesel is fabulous for on-highway driving. It is It is not meant to be a uh, city stop-start. You know, uh, it's, it's just not meant to that, be that way. But a battery electric is. I mean, a battery electric is like bringing it on all day long. You don't pull that much energy from the batteries when you're going at a lower speed. You're not you're you're not driving long distances in a, in a given day. You have a lot of stop and start. You've got a lot of time to recharge, so you can have a very relatively inexpensive um, battery. You know, EV charger or EVSE is is you know electric vehicles, something equips equipment. But um, so it it actually says, wow, you know, all day long you should do this, or even taking something like um, a class, you know, a, a yard spotter. Or a terminal tractor, um, you know they're they're not high speed, you know, and they 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 don't go very far, um, and and so there is you know chances for opportunity charging and stuff. So, um, it, you know, is every application today perfect for battery electric? Not at all. But are there some that you know fit very well? The answer is absolutely yes. So there there is that. But I think also just for us, this whole infrastructure rollout, and I and I'm not talking here about public, you know, charging infrastructure, which a lot of people um, focus on. So many uh, private fleets, it's behind the fence. It is just getting that time from permitting and getting, you know, adequate um, supply into a distribution center in the area. It's not so easy. Um, And, you know, there's, it's taking two to three years in some, in some applications. So it's, um, when you want to have something, you know, hardwired and everything. I'm not talking about mobile type of chargers. So that, I, um, unfortunately, I think the infrastructure part is not catching up as quick as um, industry folks would like. That's one of the things that I have always been so hesitant about, even on like a personal consumer level. I love the idea of electric cars. I love the, what they can do. But at the same time, if I'm on a road trip, I there's not necessarily a lot of great charging. I mean, I'm in the Midwest, so I don't have, I have to drive many hours. And so it's one of those where I'm like, well, if I'm 600 miles in, I'm going to need to get a charger. And I can't guarantee there's going to want to be, there's going to be one there um, because the infrastructure is just not there. So that's one of the things that, you know, is a little frustrating, especially looking at it from like the whole supply chain view. Um, one of the things that you brought up that I really like was that those medium duty applications and some of those smaller applications is, you know, you're, it's perfect for maybe some local deliveries or 
something that, you know, goes home every night. Maybe your dedicated hall fleets where they're not really going more than 200 miles away from one facility. I think that those are some of the best like baby steps in because I think when everyone just thinks of electric trucks, they think of those long haul trucks, which are going from coast to coast or, you know, thousands of miles. But in reality, there's a such easier application such as, you know, those dedicated fleets that just have a couple trucks that just run 200 miles or so every day. And I really feel like that's kind of like the gateway and the easiest place to start to get, um, you know, some of these fleets electric. Yeah, and decart, especially because I think you think also, you know, we did comparison and looking at and now talking and, you know, freight, moving freight, so class 80 tractors. And you look at the difference between a four hire you know, where they are doing longer hauls and they are, and they're not necessarily have a lot of parking where they're at. They also don't have, you know, wet hose. They don't have fueling behind the fence anyway. So that's a challenge for them. But would you look at a lot of the private fleets, that's different. You know, they, their goal is to get their drivers home frequently almost every night, you know, the way they've got things set up with distribution centers. So there's um, every... Every application is not, every class A tractor doesn't operate the same way anyway. It's not used the same way. And I think also what we're finding in some of the early adopters, in especially I'm thinking class A tractors, is how do I plan my routes such that I can use this, you know, I, I can use a, a shorter range. So it's it's a different way of thinking. <clears throat> it definitely is. And I, I, I have a, a small Fiat 500E, e, right? And um. I live in a old, I live in a high rise, fidget high rise in Chicago. It's built in 1929. I do not have a garage. I have off street parking, but I don't have a way I can plug in. And I have to think about it. But I liken it to be no different that when I lived in Detroit and in 1987, I bought a Mercedes 300 turbo diesel because I was doing a lot of back and forth across the state of Michigan. And I said, I want a diesel because I want. I, I'm the duty cycle I was using for is perfect for a diesel. And I just knew that I had to plan when I could buy fuel because I, I lived in Birmingham, Michigan. There was no, there was one fuel station and then it closed. So I always, when I was on Interstate 94, I knew exactly where the truck stops were and I stopped. So I didn't have range anxiety that I was going to run out of fuel. I, I, I wasn't stupid. I knew where to stop. You kind of, you know, did that base level planning because once you kind of get past that first hump of it, you're set. It's just getting that first little collection of information going, okay, well, this is where I have to fuel. So I need to plan around that. And so now instead of having the gaslight where you're like, oh, I have 10 miles to go, you're just like, no, this is this is always my new baseline and I just know what I have to do. Yeah, it it it, it takes a different mindset, but then in some ways it 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 can help fleets because now they're really sort of forced a little bit more to do route optimization. So, so there you go. Which is also a huge perk as well, because then you're not having trucks running as empty and they're not just running for the sake of running. Like it, it gets you more and you end up being more profitable with route optimization. Um, In this study that you guys found, were you, was there anything that you kind of were surprised by? That you're like, oh wait, this is this is kind of a cool finding. Um, did you guys have any of those moments? In one aspect, kind of sort of yes, no. I, I don't know if it was cool, but it's sort of an aha, and and it was brought out to us by someone was talking about in this. Now we're you know going back to class A tractors. Was um, hey, how can you say that you know how can you guys have this kind of adoption rate 
if in fact, you know, the TCO is barely there. And in fact, it's not. And, and we're like, oh, yeah. So much of our adoption rate for class eight tractors up until, you know, 2029, 20, 2030 is really being pushed by CARB's advanced clean truck and looking at those states and as they cascade in and adopt. So advanced clean truck becomes effective, you know, what we're almost, so we're, let's call this, you know, we're in September. You've got three months and advanced clean truck is effective in the state of California. And then other states are cascading and adopting that. And, and so because of that, we have put into our forecast in the assumption that those regs will be met. And when I look at, and, and in our study, we, we, we actually called attention to that and said, wow, you know, by 19, by 2030, more than 50% are going to be financially demand driven. But prior to that, the push in class A tractors is really coming from meeting the, that regulatory ZEV mandate. So that's huge. Um, so that does sort of put, you know, the, the onus, uh, you know, on the upfront um, years, but then it flips. And by the time you get to 2040, it's, it becomes a carrot versus a stick, right? Um, and that is all because of improvements in battery energy and battery technology and just the more costly um, expense then that starts to happen with diesels as the 2027 notch rates come into effect. So you've got um, costs coming down on the on the BEV side and on the fuel side, fuel cell side, but costs going up on the diesel side. That is kind of interesting from like a high level view where, you know, you see the regulation that's driving everything. Um, that's definitely something I didn't think about. That's kind of that's kind of cool from like a data perspective. It is. And I think that's where um, you look and you say, and I mean, and that's a lot of, a lot of regulations and things are there to sort of force and push, push that and push the adoption of technology. Um, I, 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 I do see, you know, the concern though, that individuals who are operating class A tractors, um, you know, have as a concern is, you know, when will I get the payback and will I, when will I get the cost savings? And I think that's why more so than other class of of trucks, those those entities are really um, I I don't I'm trying to think of the right word, but um, incentives and voucher plans and subsidies uh, play a bigger role. And when we looked at some of the early adopters and fleets, um, I could not find evidence of any fleet yet, you know, who are purchasing Class A tractors that are ZEVs that haven't um, done that with the support of subsidies. And and we're talking more than just the 40 grand that will happen with IRA. That is actually really cool. Um, so we are running out of time today, but if someone wants to reach out to you about the study or their findings, where can they find you outside of the summit? How do they find me outside of the summit? Um, I am on LinkedIn. I think you'd mentioned that. Um, and I'm. you can find me also through um, ACT Research's um, website. It's actresearch.net. Um, and, and it's like, here's, here's who we have. Um, and, um, obviously I, I, this is such a cool thing. Um, it's such a cool industry right now to be in. I'm like super geeked. I, I'm old. I've been around for a while and it's really neat to see this change. So I'd love to talk about it, you know, and, and, and I love to learn from it because everybody you talk to, you learn, they learn something from me, but I'll learn something from them. Oh, absolutely. That's what makes transportation and supply chain, everything that it is, is everyone has different experiences and stories. 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Ian. Thank you. Thank you.